Matthew 27, starting in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabastani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion who was with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which had been cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Thank you, Ted. So glad that you could be here today with us. And I want to remind you tonight, uh, church, that at 6 o'clock we have our monthly uh, Fresh Encounter service, our opportunity to pray together as a church family. Tonight we're going to be praying for um, high school seniors and also uh, praying over uh, lost uh, friends and neighbors who might be uh, joining us on uh, Easter Sunday and also praying for um, sons and daughters who've wandered away from the Lord. So if you'd like to join us for that prayer time tonight, please come at 6 o'clock. We're going to have a great time together, so love to have you there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning asking for your help and your assistance to not only understand this text, but how two words go, to de- go together, that being death in Jesus. We pray that... Um, you would meet with us during um, these next moments. I pray that by virtue of what I talk about today and what you empower by your Spirit, that there would be people today who would see you um, for who you are, would see your Son for what he did, and that you might um, birth people into your kingdom today. Whether it's here or over the Internet or in worship too, we, we just want you to come right now by your Spirit and do your work. And so we invite you to do so. We ask for clarity and understanding. We ask for you to take away all other concerns from us and let us just for a few moments hear, we pray from you. 
And so help us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some things in the Bible that just seem so right. They fit together nicely, and it just seems like, yeah, that's the way that it should be. And then there are other things, many of them, that when you see them in the content of the Bible, they just don't seem to fit. They're, they're out of place. They really don't go together. An example of something that you would read and go, wow, that really seems to fit, would be the event that happens in the church calendar that we're celebrating today, that being Palm Sunday. When Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and people are lining the streets with palm branches in their coats and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And you read that text and you go, yeah, that's right. That's what they should be saying. He's the king. That's what you should do. However, scenes like that don't last very long in the scriptures. That kind of response, frankly, is rare. More often than not, we see things in the Bible that are words that just really shouldn't go together. For instance, the Son of God is condemned. Or Jesus was crucified. Those words just shouldn't be in close proximity to one another. And as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there should be some level of a visceral reaction to how Jesus is treated what's said about him, and even what happens to him. You should read the Bible through a lens of what happens to Jesus is just so wrong. And it is wrong. He's the Son of God. He shouldn't be treated like this. He shouldn't be crucified. He shouldn't be condemned. And and that is precisely what Matthew and other writers of the Bible want you to be able to see, that there is this tension that exists between who Jesus is and then what is said about him. And in many respects, it's tragic, horribly so. For example, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 links Jesus and the word sin. It says, for our sake, he, that means God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. That's wrong. Yeah, it's in the Bible, so it's right, but it's wrong in the sense of, how could you say that Jesus became sin? That just shouldn't go together. Or... Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament through this lens, you will find that over and over and over, there are stunning things that are said about Jesus or stunning things that are done to him that just seem so unnatural and for that matter are frankly scandalous. To say that Jesus became sin or that he became the curse, or here's another, To say that Jesus died, those two words should not go together. There's there's nothing about those two words, Jesus and die, that even seem to fit. Nothing that's right, nothing that's fair, nothing that's even sensible. And yet, this connection between Jesus and died is at the heart of what makes the gospel the gospel. It's at the heart of what the good news of the Bible is. And it is that this unfairness that Jesus embraces, this scandal of the gospel, is simply that Jesus' undeserving death creates undeserving grace for you. I mean, that's a scandal right there. So, two words should never go together. Jesus died and you forgiven. Those shouldn't go together. 
And the scandal of the message of the Bible is that Jesus, by becoming sin, by becoming the curse, by Jesus dying, this undeserving death, creates a pathway for men and women, God's created beings, to be made right with their God through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And this is the heart of the gospel. And it's the essence of why Paul called the cross a scandal. Now, for those of you who are joining us for the first time and you're not quite sure how all of this fits into Palm Sunday, let me be frank, it, it doesn't directly. We're in the middle of a series on Matthew, and uh, next week we'll look at the subject of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And to kind of set the stage for you of where we've been, we've seen in the passion of Jesus this betrayal of our Lord. We've seen him unjustly charged by the religious leaders. He was mocked. He was brought before Pilate, exchanged for a criminal. He was severely flogged. He was ridiculed by the Roman soldiers. He was forced to carry his cross. And then, where we were last Sunday, was Jesus was crucified. Where we are in the text is what is commonly called Good Friday. And last week we saw Jesus was crucified sometime between the time of 9 in the morning and noon. And our text today picks it right back up where we left it last week at noon and then carries us into his death. And from this day, what I want to show you is five things that we learn about God's grace in the death of Jesus. So God put these words together. Jesus died. And we had to know what is God saying through his holy word to us as human beings such that he would put these two words together. Jesus died. So... Five things. Here's the first. This text tells us that God's judgment has come. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So this would be from noon to three, which is the brightest time of the day. A darkness comes over all of the people, the land. So Passover, the sacrificial lamb, was sacrificed during um, this time window. And so while people are coming to this great festival, darkness envelops uh, the city of Jerusalem and, and, and all of the environment around the crucifixion location. What's the point of this darkness? Well, some have suggested that it was dark because God was <clears throat> trying to hide or shield His Son from people seeing Him in His suffering. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think what's happening here is that God is making a public statement about divine judgment. This this foreboding darkness that comes makes it feel as though there is this judgment that is coming upon the people. In a similar fashion, when big storms begin to roll through our state in the spring and summer, when dark clouds begin to form, you look up at the sky, and it almost seems as though the clouds are angry. They look foreboding. They look like they are are, are full of wrath. And so the sense of darkness that comes over, there, there is this darkness that envelops the land because, indeed, God is bringing about divine judgment. And in the Bible, darkness was usually associated with God's judgment. For for instance, in the book of Exodus, chapter 10, in regards to one of the plagues, God says this about darkness. Stretch out your hand, he's saying this to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. And then he says this, a darkness to be felt. You ever had that? 
a darkness that could be felt. So it's not just dark, it's a dark that gets into your soul. And this is the darkness that is happening in the context of Jesus' crucifixion. And then the best passage is Amos chapter 8 and verse 7. Notice all of the parallels in this text. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts, remember when Jesus is being crucified, I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. So this darkness equals some kind of foreboding judgment of God. And as we approach the death of Jesus, we see here the God's judgment upon sin that Jesus will endure. What's going to happen is that the sinless Son of God will absorb the fullness of God's wrath for sin. And so therefore, it's no wonder that this darkness comes. This is a dark moment because God is about ready to pour out His wrath on sin. So what does this tell us? Well, it shows us the supremacy of God's holiness. If you wanted to take something away from that particular point, it would be this, that this darkness shows us the supremacy of God's holiness. Because that means that God has for so long passed over sin. He's he's tolerated the rebellion of His people, but now has come the time for judgment. The text shows us that God in His supremacy and His holiness is bringing about the judgment that is deserved because of the presence of sin in the world. And so the text shows us that God's judgment, while delayed, is nonetheless certain. This is really, really important. Don't miss this. Because there are some of you who think that because you've done things in your life and you've gotten away with it and there's no consequences, you have this thought, maybe overtly or maybe covertly, that God must not really be real because after all, I got away with it and I really wasn't either busted or punished, so therefore I just kind of run on my own life. And I will tell you, do not confuse the delay of God's judgment with the certainty of His judgment. And that's what this darkness tells us, that God's judgment is coming That we have to begin with our understanding of the supremacy of God. In His holiness, He reigns supreme. And that one day, everything that's ever done that's in violation to His will and His heart will be exposed. So the darkness tells us that God's judgment has come. Here's the second thing. Verse 46 tells us about sin and how it causes separation. After enduring three hours of this darkness... At the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., Jesus cries out in agony. The text says, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22.1. He says, Eli, Eli, the word for God, Elohim. That's Eli is short for that, and it sounds very similar to the name Elijah. Even in English, we transfer that over, Elijah. And so some people confuse his cry for God for a cry for Elijah. You see, 
Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, one of the last texts in the Old Testament, says that Elijah would return on that great and awesome day of the Lord. And so people interpret that he's calling out for Elijah to save him, which led then one person to run and get a sponge and take some sour wine and give it to him. And then in the process of trying to do that, his friend said, no, 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 no. Let's wait and see if Elijah will come and save him. Verse 49. So just notice that even at the end of Jesus' life, he's even now not fully understood. They still don't get him. They, They entirely miss the point of this moment. Jesus is crying out to God, my God, my God. And they think he's crying out for Elijah. But the most important word in that sentence in verse 46 is the word forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus here is in the darkest moment of his earthly life, and he uses this word forsaken, which can be translated as to abandon, or to leave behind, or to desert. It's remarkable that Jesus says this because Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27 tells us that Jesus has a special intimacy with the Father that we can't even fully comprehend what that was all about. He says this, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. So there is a, a level of intimacy here between Jesus and the Father that is unique and special and powerful. By the way, an intimacy that we will know in part when we see Him as He is, when we are with Him in glory. So we'll know a level of this intimacy, but what happens here is that Jesus, in this particular moment, and with this particular word of, why have you abandoned me, is expressing the fact that he feels the departing presence of the Father. He feels the Father drawing away from him. He feels the separation that's happening because of the consequence of sin. So... We don't fully understand what's happening here, but Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is expressing this forsakenness that is central to the suffering of the cross and the punishment for sin. What's happening here is that Jesus' faith isn't wavering. He's not saying this because somehow his his faith is, 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 is shaky, but rather he's acknowledging the pain of separation that comes because of the real consequences or the effects of sin. You see, sin creates separation. It's always been that way. Sin, because it's rebellion against God, immediately creates a break between God's people and himself. This began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were in that garden and they ate of of that tree that God told them, you shall not eat of it. And, And then as a result, they felt guilt. And what did they do? They put clothes on, trying to make themselves clothing, and then they hid. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10, when God's coming through the garden, he's calling out for Adam, and finally Adam acknowledges that he hears God, and God asks him, why is he hiding? And then Adam says this, it almost sounds like a four-year-old kid, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then God goes, hey, who told you you're naked? (laughs) Whoops, busted, right? So, who told you you're naked? The fact that, that, that Adam feels ashamed, the fact that he knows that he's naked, and then begins to retreat both in his clothing and in the presence of the Lord indicates the consequence of their sin. And then the effect of their judgment was that Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. God, according to Genesis 3.23, says, sent him out of the garden of Eden. He drove out the man. So the effect is that sin creates separation. And you know this, it creates separation even in, in your life and in your relationships. When there's sin and conflict in the context of your home, do, do you as a husband and wife feel really close to one another? you feel like you're on the same page? 
When your kids disobey, although you don't somehow abandon them and say, I don't love you anymore, but there's a sense of, wow, there's something really wrong here, that, that, that there's a battle going on within the heart of a child. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I had a disagreement about something, a pretty significant conflict as far as I saw things one way and she saw them another. And, and you know, it did, we talked about it. We still couldn't get it resolved. And I saw it one way and she saw it another. And, of course, she's wrong, but it took her a while to realize that. And, <laughs> and, and so we're in this conflict. And, and it wasn't overly sinful, but because there was disagreement, there was the fundamental presence of sin. And the result was that for about a day, there was this sense that a third person was in our home. This person that was coming between us. I hate it. My, I'm one flesh with my wife and I can feel this sin that is pulling us apart. I hate that. That's, that separation is what sin creates. It's a similar thing that my wife was taking Savannah through the store the other day and, and she's walking around and she goes, I, Mommy, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. And Sarah kept saying, no, no, you can't have that. No, you can't have this. No, you can't have this. And, and, and she's starting to cry and get upset. And, and finally Sarah got on her knees, I think it was in, in Target, on her knees and said, Honey, you, you can't have all of these things. And she said, this, she said, Mommy, I just want them so bad. And Sarah said, I know, Mommy does too. But you can't. And that the presence of that, that, that sin, that desire that creates separation from the created order, from one another, that's the essence of what sin is. And it's even the thing that violates your own conscience when you do something that's wrong as a sense of, you know what, this is not who I should be. It's like a separation between what should be and what is. And, and this is the essence of what sin does. Paul, reflecting on this in the book of Ephesians, describes it this way. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by or made in the flesh by hands. Remember, here it comes, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the condition, the fundamental condition that we have in life because of sin is separation. And what happens is that Jesus experiences the consequences of sin. He, You abandoned me. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He's experiencing the full effects of sin. He absorbs the disfavor and the wrath of God. He embraces in his sinless self the full consequences of sin. And that is why the Apostle Paul says that he became sin. He experienced the separation that is so linked with the concept and the effects of sin. Jesus embodied all that is wrong with sin in himself. He experiences the full consequences of sin, which was the terrifying and agonizing separation from the Father And the Bible warns us that this separation is the essence of what eternal hell is like. So this is the wrath of God. It's not a pretty sight. In fact, there are some people who claim to preach the gospel who are uncomfortable even talking about the wrath of God. Talking about this notion of what it means for God to be angry about sin. They think that presents God in a light that isn't culturally helpful. For instance, Brian McLaren in his book, More Ready Than You Realize, suggests that the cross is a form of divine child abuse. That's just a horrible way to, to see 
the cross. Or this week, Time Magazine's feature article was about Rob Bell's new book, Love Wins, which has caused a firestorm of controversy because of his apparent belief in a form of universalism, meaning that all people are eventually saved. In that book, he writes this, At the center of the Christian tradition since the first church have been a number who insist that history is not tragic, hell is not forever, and love, in the end, wins, and all will be reconciled to God. The controversy, however, is really not about hell. And frankly, it's not really even about sin. The heart of the controversy is another question. This question. What is God really like? Is he full of love? Oh, yes, he is. But he's also full of justice. And if you divorce the justice from his love, you you have a cross that is empty, a holiness of God that is diminished, and a salvation, frankly, that isn't fully orbed in all of the sense of what it needs to be. You see, the cross is the intersection of love and mercy and justice and justification. It's the line where justice and love cross. So the question isn't about heaven or hell. It's, is what is God like? Is He really holy? How bad is sin? And for that matter, how much danger are we really in? You see, the darkness and the abandonment of Jesus would make no sense unless you understand the beauty of God's holiness and the horrible treason of sin. So to ask the question, are all people saved, is actually the wrong question to start with. The question you have to start with is, what is God really like? And then you can begin to answer the other questions. Without an understanding of infinite holiness, the abandonment of Jesus seems offensive. Friends, Jesus was abandoned by the Father because sin is that bad. And to diminish sin, or to diminish God's holiness, in order to somehow make the gospel more palatable in our culture, Not only is it an affront to God's holiness, but it also diminishes what the cross really is all about. The cross is the union of God's justice and His justification. And when you understand this, I mean, when you understand it, that it was your sin and God is disposed in wrath towards sin and that He finds mercy by applying your sin to Christ, this moment, this horrible moment, when death and Jesus go together is not only understood, it's loved, it's sung about, and it is preached with great hope. Central to the promise of what happens in Jesus is that those then who understand this and trust in Him and say to God, take Jesus' death and count that for me, when that happens, the Bible promises there is nothing that can then separate you from the love of God. What is destroyed is not only your sin. What is destroyed is separation. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else created in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So what Jesus does in being separated from the Father is he makes it possible for you to stake your life on that verse and know no matter what happens to me, even if they kill me, even if I die, even if I'm persecuted, even if they say horrible things about me, nothing can separate me from my God. Nothing can separate me from the love of God because I know a Savior who was already separated in order to pay my penalty for my sin so I could know the love of God eternally and never wonder if I could ever lose that. Third, we find here that Jesus chooses to die. At the end of the season of darkness, verse 50 says that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Luke 23 tells us that Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John 19 says that Jesus cried out, it is finished. If you put all these together, what you find here is a climactic moment in the life and ministry of Jesus where he experiences what he should have never experienced. This is the Son of God. He's sinless. And he experiences death. He should have never experienced death. Why why do I say that? Because death is the byproduct of the effect of sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What that means is that death is the ultimate consequence of sin. It is the just penalty of rebellion against God. If God is holy and we are His created beings, and it's our aim as being His created beings in order to, to glorify Him and to worship Him, and if we choose to worship ourselves, that is treason, that's rebellion against the holy God, deserving of death. So death was introduced to the world by virtue of the first sin with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then the effect of it was that it spread to the entire created order. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So death becomes now a part of our normal human existence, but what you need to know is death is abnormal. It's an aberrant element in the context of God's creation. And every time that someone dies, every time that we go to a funeral, there ought to be this this sense within us that death is not good. Sure, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. But at the end of the day, the presence of death is an affront. It's there because of sin. And the longing, the drumbeat of the heart of a believer in Jesus Christ is, I long for the day when death will be no more. I hate death. I hate it. I can remember one of the hardest moments of my entire life is taking the casket of our little girl and putting it into the ground and then getting in a car and leaving. You don't leave children in the middle of a field on a cold February day. There's nothing that's normal and nothing that's right about that moment. It just, it screams, something is broken here. So death is supposed to be a reminder that the world is broken. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. And that is exactly why Revelation 20 verse 14 triumphantly declares that in the final victory of God, death and Hades, the grave, are thrown into the lake of fire. So not only is the lake of fire prepared for the devil, his hosts, and all those who still remain in the rebellion against Jesus Christ, but it also is made ready for death and Hades, the day when the death And grave principle will no longer be operational in our world. It is unthinkable that the sinless, perfect, 
It is unthinkable that the sinless and perfect and righteous Son of God would not only suffer, but it is unthinkable, it's outrageous, that this single most defining, most utterly reprehensible effect of sin, that being death, should be linked with Him. That He, more glorious than anything on planet Earth, should experience the one thing that says that something is really, really wrong with this world. Death is the clearest, most horrific symbol of what is wrong with everything on earth, and the Son of God experiences it personally. It is just fundamentally so flawed and wrong. And yet, remarkably, Jesus experiences this willingly. Matthew, in particular, makes a point to say that Jesus yielded up his spirit. So the idea is not that he's just suffering the effects of of death or sin, not that he's just absorbing the wrath of God, but rather the idea is he is willingly yielding up his spirit. And Matthew even tells us that with a loud voice he yielded up his spirit. The indication there is not that Jesus is somehow just being acted upon, but instead he is courageously and intentionally charging into death. John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople, who lived from 349 to 407, says this, For this cause he cried with the voice that it might be shown that the act was done by power. So his death is not a moment of defeat. It is a willing giving of a gift that will then bring about a great victory. So what does this show us? Friends, it shows us this, that Jesus was willing to give himself in obedience he, he willingly gives himself in obedience, such that First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So central to the idea of what Christ does and what it means to be his followers is this willing obedience, this, this willingly this, this willing and triumphant pursuit of obeying the will of the Father. And doing so in a way that you give selflessly of yourself. So if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, all you need to do is look at the cross to figure out what your life should be like. You should be a person who willingly lays down your life for others. It means, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It becomes the model of how you work. Servants, obey your masters in the Lord. It becomes a model for wives. Be submissive to your husbands as unto the Lord. It becomes a model for children. Obey your parents in the Lord. It becomes a model for everything you do, for whatever you eat and drink. Do all to the glory of God. This idea that your life is permeated by this willing obedience, not this begrudging, I've got to serve God because I'm afraid of him or he doesn't like me, but this sense of I want to be like Jesus because of everything that he's done for me. So like you willingly gave your life for me, I will willingly give my life for you as I give it out for the cause of your name in the lives of others. So judgment has come. Sin is separation. He chooses to die. Here's the fourth thing. Everything changes. This is remarkable. Verse 51 tells us that there was an earthquake. Rocks were split open. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What's that about? Well, this likely was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. In the temple, there were two main rooms, the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the room that contained the Ark of the Covenant. 
And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim, golden cherubim, on what was called the mercy seat. And once a year at Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, the priest, high priest, would walk into the Holy of Holies and he would take that blood, he would sprinkle it on the top of the altar, the mercy seat as a symbolic representation of the people's atonement for their sins. And then the priest would go outside, declare what he had done. He would find a goat. He would put his hands on the goat's head. And then they would send the goat out of the city and say, as far as east is from the west, so our sins are removed from us. The goat was the scapegoat. Well, the Bible tells us that this curtain was torn in two. And the effect of this from a symbolic perspective, was to see that Jesus now, in his death, becomes the new high priest, and get this, he becomes the sacrifice. So rather than having a sacrifice that you bring in, he is the sacrifice, and as this new high priest, he goes in, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but rather with his own blood, that he once and for all makes atonement as the sinless son of God, experiencing a death that he didn't deserve, that's outrageous in its impact, and says, in effect, I come into the holy holies, and I make atonement for the people's sin. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 9 says about this. But when Jesus Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, meaning his body, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the splitting of this curtain means that God has now made a new and final way. Then there's a a resurrection of sorts. Look at verses uh, 52 and 53. The tombs were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is a strange text, but what it means is that there's a bit of a harbinger of what's to come. And so the tombs were opened, it seems, when Jesus dies. And then after his resurrection, these people come out and they they go into the city of Jerusalem. Can you imagine that moment? Hi, guys. You were dead. I'm alive. Right? And it's an indication of what's going to happen later on when Christ returns and the dead in Christ will rise. It's, a, it's an image of what's to come. And then third, there is a confession by the centurion and others who beheld his death when they said, truly, this is the Son of God. See, what's happening here is these, these epic events are convincing those who were formerly his abusers and his mockers that he really was the Son of God. So they see him for who he is now. Even in his death, they say, truly, he is the Son of God. And, and I want you to know that this particular text reminds us that God can change anything. He's the one who tore the temple, in, the temple curtain in two and made a new way for atonement to happen. This, this means that God can take the, the reality of who you are. He can rip it apart and make a new person out of you. He can take your past and say to you, that past doesn't define you anymore. I've made you now a new person. The the old is gone, the new has come. In fact, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. If anyone therefore is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's ripped. It's gone. The new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see again, and how did this happen? You are a changed person. You're radically different. So last week we were at a conference uh, with some of our pastoral staff and walking with one of our pastors down the sidewalk, Corey Johnson, and a guy on the street came up to him and said, hey man, can you score me a smoke? And Corey said this, quote, sorry man, I gave that up when I gave my life to Jesus. 
in four seconds, he shared the gospel with him. So I, my nickname for him now is the Gospel Ninja. That's what I've called him. So he's like, you know, kind of, you know, how about that? So kind of a smoke, Jesus. He just kind of throws that in, you know. I was like, yeah, man, way to go. But you know that single statement that that just came out so quickly, so naturally. You know why? Because he was radically transformed by Christ. And oh, to God that we would see everything through that lens. People who are like, no, I'm sorry, I, my life, I gave that up when I came to Jesus. I gave that up when I came. No, I, I can't do that because I gave my heart to life to Jesus. I can do this now because I gave my heart and life to Jesus. Oh, to have the vibrancy of Christ so at the front of who and what we are that we know that God really changes people. Listen, God can change you today. Today. And finally, more to come. These signs all add volume and a future context to what is happening at Golgotha. We have the tearing of the curtain, the earthquake, the opening of the tombs, the confession of the Roman centurion. All of these are markers of what is yet to come. And Matthew is using all of this to introduce us to key elements of what's going to happen next week. you got to come back next week to find out. I'll give you a little hint. A resurrection happens next Sunday. Okay. Watching from a distance, verse 55, were a number of women who had been a part of Jesus' ministry. There's three women there, Mary Magdalene, a woman who had been delivered of demons. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. She's either the mother of um, also of Jesus or she's the wife of Clopas. We're not sure which of the two she is. And also the mother of James and John. By the way, this is the same mom who said, Can my son sit at your right and your left in the kingdom? And Jesus said, You have no idea what I'm asking. And then he said to the disciples, can you drink the cup? And they're like, we can drink the cup. I imagine she's sitting there looking right, left, and like, whew, yeah, now I know what he's talking about. These women are no doubt grieving the death of Jesus, and they will become featured characters in the resurrection. By the way, women, just a word to you in case you've ever felt like a second-class citizen in the context of the Bible or church. Notice that the women are here. Where in the world are the disciples? And by the way, the women are the first ones who announce the resurrection. See, women are really important in the economy of God. They're not second-class citizens. In fact, they're featured here at the end of Jesus' life and the beginning of the new dawn of the new day. It's beautiful. And leaves us asking, so where are they except for John? And then finally, we come to the burial of Jesus by Joseph of Arimathea, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which we had cut in the rock. The reason this is important is that often they left crucified people up on a cross to rot, or they took their bodies and threw them in a trash heap. Jesus, however, gets a tomb with a big stone over it, because it might be one thing to be raised from the dead from a trash heap. Well, he just got up. He just—he wasn't fully dead when they threw him in there. Well, now, no, Matthew's going to prove that he's not only dead, but he's in a tomb and he's sealed. And that makes the resurrection to come a big deal. And they rolled a great stone over the entrance and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. All of this sets the stage for what is to come three days later, and that is this, that death was not the end. Hear me, he will rise again. He will come out of that tomb. Next Sunday we'll see it. He'll come out of that tomb victorious over death and the grave and will declare His supremacy over everything including sin and everything that separates us from God. So listen to me. There, 
The conclusion to all of this is this, that there are only two ways to see Jesus this morning, only two ways that you will see Him in the future. You either see Him today as your Savior who took away your sin, as the one who you trusted in, who you ran to because you knew that you're a sinner and you knew that the only way for you to be forgiven is to put your trust and faith in Christ. You either see Him that way or the only other way you're going to see Jesus is as your judge. You either see Him as the one who purchased your redemption Or eventually you will see him. You will say that he is the Lord. The Bible tells us that one day every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, that Jesus is Lord. Your sin, the reality of what Christ has done, and all of the dynamics of what it means for him to be your Savior are on the line as you look at the cross. Some of you may go, I don't even know if God exists. Here's my push on that. When you do something wrong, you feel guilty. Where in the world does that come from? Does that come from you? Because if it was up to you, you wouldn't feel that guilt. That guilt says there's a created, there's a God who created you. He has a divine order of what's right and wrong. And he writes that law in your heart. And so when you feel guilty, it's a warning sign that God is real and you're in trouble. And yet the beautiful message of the Bible is this. There's good news that Jesus took your place. He became the sacrifice. He took your separation. He bore your sins. And the Bible calls you today to receive Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you don't, then he's your judge and you're under God's wrath. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who are forgiven and those who are under judgment. And for those who know the beauty of the taste of God's grace, they see the cross and they can't help but say things like this. Jesus paid it, what? All. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sing that with me, will you? Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray that You by Your mercy would even now draw People who are under your wrath, who feel guilty, which is a gift, a warning. But today who see the beauty of the cross, that you would draw them today to yourself. And even right now, in faith, crying out to you, say, Lord Jesus, I believe. Come, I trust in you that today would be the day of conversion. Right in this room or over the internet or in worship too, that today would be a day of conversion. And for those who know this truth, that they would live in it and through it by your power and for your glory. Oh God, I thank you for the mingling of both the death and the word Jesus. That these two words combine for such a glorious, powerful redemption. Friends, before I let you go, I just want to plead with you today that if if today you've never received Christ, today is a day where you could receive the Lord Jesus. We have folks up front who would love to be able to lead you to Christ. Don't don't risk. Don't risk it. Just because you've never been judged, you've never seen the effects of God's judgment, don't play with God's wrath. Come to faith in Christ. These folks are here to pray with you today. I plead with you to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Please come to Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself, either here, at home, or with these folks afterwards. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming today.